Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, yeah, let's get started. It's been a it's been a week. Uh, I only have four movies to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know why. I, I feel like I have not been keeping up on movies this year. Well, although yeah. I've I've seen fifty three 2019 releases. Yeah, I've seen like half that maybe yeah. a little bit more you know so i don't know i feel like i'm not uh, I'm, I'm not watching movies at the rate that i like to be you'll catch sure up i know it's the summertime i know you like to spend your days at the beach soaking in the sun you know you don't have time for movies when you're doing that no no, no that's true okay um <laughs> but uh yeah what i did do i'm trying to give you an out that makes you sound cool <laughs> <laughs> no i'm trying to know, like what did i even do this weekend like that's that's one thing about my life is that i do more of my movie watching during the week Hmm. the weekends are usually taken up with other things yeah um but uh you know what you know i did this saturday what's that i saw a movie so we'll talk about that in a little bit all right then um Anyway, but I'm going to start with a rewatch, which I don't normally... Uh, I, I rewatch more movies than I talk about in here, but sometimes mm-hmm. uh, I don't need to get into my sort of compulsive behavior and how I decide what um, rewatches I'm going to talk about. It would, uh, it would make you worry about my mental uh, state. Because I think I'm, that ship has sailed. I think yeah. everybody is already very yeah. worried. I am way too rigid. Um, it's a problem. Okay, yeah. All right. What is it? What is what? What's the what's the criteria? No, the for... I can't even. Basically, if I rewatch something impulsively, like okay. so, a couple weekends ago, I went out. Or this was no, this is before Comic Con. So this was uh, like a month ago, almost. Um, I went out for drinks with my wife uh, and our friend, and the um, TV at the bar was on. I don't know what channel it was on, but whatever channel it was on, they were showing Django Unchained. Okay, and I knew that it once upon a time in Hollywood was coming out, so I really think so. I went home from the bar that night and watched Django Unchained. Sure, that's an impulsive rewatch. I'm not going to talk about that. Okay, but I also have lists that I keep, which I can't even go into. You know, but they're lists of like classic movies that I've never seen before and classic movies to revisit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when one of those in my mini because I have multiple lists to dictate what I watch in what order and what not and so when I catch up to one of those lists and I do a rewatch from that that counts that I'll talk about because I had planned beforehand to watch it I it doesn't say, make any sense but it makes sense to me I have I have rules myself for rewatches uh, that I will bring up on the show or not um and it's usually uh, if I rewatch a movie and I either have a new take or something hits me in a, in a new way, then I will talk about it. But if I'm, I hate to say it, if I'm seeing Jaws again and yeah. I'm enjoying it in exactly the same way I did the last time, then I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna mention it. But do you? Okay, and then this will get me into the movie. I'm not sure how uh, meticulously you tend to your letterboxed. I'm. Uh, after, pretty, after a couple of years of avoiding Letterboxd, at the beginning of 2018, I got into it, and now I'm obsessed yes. with, with keeping up on everything. So I don't know what you do the, the same. Uh, I, certainly, if I if I see a 2019, you know, a movie from this oh. year, I keep up on that. And then um, I do try to keep up, just honestly, for Movie Journal 
reasons. Right. I try to, if, if I see something that I haven't seen before, I will rate it and yeah, but all if you, of that. This is my question. If you rewatch something, will you go in and adjust your rating? I have done that before. If it is a passionate, if I have a, a, a passionate, uh, reassessment. Well, here's what, uh, so here's what happened. I rewatched Ernst Lubitsch's the shop around the corner. Okay. Uh, over the weekend. And I loved it. And I've, I've long loved the movie. Mm-hmm. And I went and saw, like, I went to put it on my diary as a rewatch on Letterboxd and saw that it was only four stars, which four stars is a very good review. But, like, I just watched it and I was like, what was that? this is a five-star movie. What was I thinking? Yeah. So I, I don't know what I was thinking because I never posted a review or anything of it. So I did up my review, my rating from four to five stars. Full five. For, uh, yeah, I, I, I find... No fault, fault with the movie, sure. really, except maybe the... Have you seen it? No, uh, no I haven't. Okay. Um, the character of Pepe's a bit annoying, but he's supposed to be annoying. Okay. Um, but um, I guess I had thoughts, and yeah, we. I don't want to, like, you know, the the debates of this week, obviously, um, everything's political all the time. I don't want to oh, get sure. too political, but I definitely was watching it now in an era... Uh, or at least in the time since then when I thought more about things like workers' rights and unionization and minimum wage, you know, raising minimum wage or whatever and income inequality and all that stuff. Um, the premise of the movie is all, all the characters work and mm-hmm. it, it takes place in Budapest. Everyone speaks English. Some people have accents and some people don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why. I don't know how it's decided. Um, but I, it was probably a good decision not to make Jimmy Stewart talk in a Hungarian accent. Probably for the uh, best, yes. Um, but uh, so they all work for this guy. They work at Mondelchuk's Mondel Mondel Mendelchuk. No, I can't remember the character. Mondelchuk, I think, is his name. At his like dry goods, just essentially a department store. But anyway, um, and it just really made me realize how much sort of in ways you couldn't get away from now because we have certain labor laws and stuff. Mm. Like these people are all just at the whim of their boss. Yeah. It's sort of like, did you ever see hello Dolly? No, that's, that's another one. Like Walter Matthau's employees might as well live at the store because all they do is work for him. You know, and like their prospects of like going out and like having a life and getting married or stuff and stuff are completely stymied by the fact that they have this job that they have to be at all the time. And so I kept thinking, and it really, it really stuck out to me how much they're at the whim of this this guy, uh, because one of the big plot points in the movie, um, again, you know the premise because you've seen you've yeah. got mail, yes, right, yeah. So it's the two characters that are they hate each other, the man Jimmy Stewart and uh, I forget her name, uh, but they don't realize they're also the pen pals they love, right? Um, and so they're supposed to finally meet, and Mr. Monochuk says. Uh, looks at the display in the window and he's like, you know what? After we close tonight, everyone's staying late until we redo all the all the windows. Right. And so they both have to try and like figure out a way to get out of it. But I just I kept think I was thinking now like, thank God we have labor laws. Like I, you couldn't do that to someone now, unless they're on salary, right? Like you can you can make more demands of someone if if it's like this is That's what you we've agreed to. Like That's I true remember because you, you mentioned that I did this because I have my work my my job has a very stressful ongoing project right now, and my boss on Friday came to my office and and um uh not quite like a Bill Lumberg type of way, but basically said what's your phone number in case I need to text you over the weekend? And a part of me was, I wanted to be like, none of your business. Pal. Exactly. I wanted to be yeah. like, um, 
what I, what I, I guess what I should have said is, oh, I checked my email on my phone, but I don't want to, like, it's my boss. She didn't end up texting right. me. Uh, she also gave me her number, so uh, I guess it goes both ways, but whatever. Um, so, yeah, I guess there is a little bit more of that because I am a salaried employee, and there is a certain expectation that I have I have X amount of work, and I need to get it right. done. Like, the fact that, you know, the... Uh, like uh the the fact that the 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 brontosaurus is howled at the end of the working shift and i give you fred flintstone <laughs> oh, right. and just yeah. like punch my card and yeah and slide down the dinosaur's back or whatever yeah um uh so yeah i guess you, you're you're right about that but the, these people are yeah they're they likely are not salaried employees yeah they are low uh um or they are but it's still probably low yeah they're low wage employees anyway that's not what the movie is about, but I figured right. part of the, I think part of the fun of talking about a rewatch, especially a movie that I that I think is talked about a lot, like Shop on the Corner, is just coming at it from a new yeah. point of view. Did that um, take you out of it? Did no, it no, make I still okay. I, I love the movie. All right, but uh, it was something I hadn't really thought of when watching the movie before. Um, that that so many of the plot points revolve around a method of working that feels outdated not that people aren't there's still people who are treated poorly by their bosses sure. and 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 paid poorly um but this shower on the corner hello dolly thing of like uh this job is your life and there's no yeah. like there's very little way to move up although jimmy stewart eventually does because right. it's a movie um but uh yeah the movie is is lovely the chemistry is great the movie is very funny um. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean Jimmy Stewart has this sort of like cornball reputation, but he like in in all of his movies he's got a really sly wit. About oh yeah, him. and he can get away. I think because he's so genial and and, and so mm. likable, he can get away with a level of sarcasm that can sometimes be a little cutting. That's part yeah. of the that's that's part of the premise of of the of his character at least in the movie is that he's the only one at the at this store who is honest with mr model chuck mm-hmm. and it's maybe because he can say it in a way yeah. that's kind of kind of sly the whole opening bit is that mr model chuck wants to buy uh wants to start carrying these uh cigar cases that play a song when you open it to get a cigar and jimmy stewart hates them and is kind of finding yeah sly sarcastic funny ways to say that i uh i hate these and i think we shouldn't carry them in the store yeah i've been meaning to watch jen has seen it actually and she really loves it and Mm -hmm. as a jimmy stewart fan myself yeah especially jimmy stewart in comedies Mm -hmm. uh i mean ever obviously everybody in philadelphia story is amazing yeah uh but yeah he's a guy that comes in with a very specific type of cynicism uh that i think he pulls off really well it's it it can be a little bit jarring when you first hear it but then he you know i think as an actor one of the reasons that i think he's used so well by hitchcock is because he just has a quality to him that gets you on his side and then he just sort of uses that to pull you into whatever it is he might be doing whether it be just simply being sarcastic or you know looking in other people's windows or uh, manipulating women, whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> he, he's your man. Yeah. 
All right, what did you watch? I finally, uh, it would appear that the that the AMC uh, cleared all those bats out of the theater because I was finally able to go see Spider-Man Far From Home. I would not have been able to focus on the movie. Was it the same auditorium? No, it wasn't. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> what auditorium? The Give me the number of the auditorium. I believe it was Hills. number 10 at the AMC Promenade in uh, Woodland Hills. Yeah, I'll never go. Yeah, I saw I saw Spider-Man at, at uh, an AMC in Burbank. Um, oh, one of three. Where, well, yeah, exactly, yeah. Between the three of them, there's in the area of like, uh, like 108 uh, individual auditoriums. You could like... In downtown Burbank, like it's like a funny saying, but you could throw a rock and there's a pretty good chance you're going to hit an AMC <laughs> in, in, in that central part of Burbank. You know, in a way, I mean, it kind of makes you feel like I, mean, I understand why they wouldn't do this, but you could Burbank could host a film festival really well. Oh, like sure. like those, the, three those three AMC theaters. And by the way, 14 years in Los Angeles, there's one of them I've never been to. I've only been, I've been to the 16 a million times. Yeah. And I've been to the one inside the mall, mm-hmm. probably most recently was J. Edgar, so it's been a while. Oh, or yeah. The Fighter, which one was first? J. Edgar, the Fighter was The one. Fighter was first, yeah. Uh, the Fighter was before J. Edgar? The Fighter was 2010, J. Edgar was 11, I think. Okay, so J. Edgar was probably the last thing I saw there. But that other one, which is, is that, is that the six or is that the eight? That's the eight. No, that's the six. The, the eight, eight is, is, in the, the, is in the mall. The mall. The six is outside. Never been to the Burbank six. Don't know what it looks like in there. I can say I can picture the outside of it. I think I've been there a grand total of twice. And once was when I went to see uh, the blind side and halfway through it started running upside down and backwards. So they gave me a voucher uh, to That's come back. The, what year was that? Nine. 2009? Yeah. Was that movie that? That movie's 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was still film. So it yeah. meant that they spliced it together wrong. Yeah, it was uh, uh, really demonic uh, very suddenly. <laughs> uh, it's like this really uh, milk toast movie became way more interesting just now. Um, Guy Madden's the blind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that goes back to a thing that I've said before, uh, which is I just, if I were an eccentric billionaire, I re- yes, okay, I'd give a lot of it to charity, but I would also have my own little experiments. Sure. Experiments that you can't say no to, which is, okay, uh, art house director, I'm, you're going to make an action movie now, and I'll pay for whatever you need. And then action director, you're going to make a kitchen sink drama, and I'll pay for whatever you need. Uh, and just see how it, how it goes. But anyway, uh, Spider-Man yeah. Far From Home... Did you see Spider-Man Homecoming? I did not. Okay. Uh, I mean, you've already had plenty of exposure to the character, having seen the Infinity. The two, in, the two uh, yeah. And then um, he was also in Civil War, which I don't think you saw, right? I did not see okay. that one. Um, but I'm familiar with John Watts' work because I've seen Cop Car. Right, Sorry, which, I actually, which I actually haven't seen, but I think I would enjoy. It's fine. Yeah. It's, it's a distraction. Um, so here's uh, what I'll say is that I actually I like it quite a bit. I think Tom Holland does good work as Spider-Man. I think they do a good job from a world building standpoint of kind of explaining how the Thanos disappearance uh, that, you know, his disappearing of other people, like how it impacted the world. Um, and they do this through a, a little piece of exposition where like the, the high school um, TV video crew or whatever uh-huh. um, they're uh, explaining uh, what's going on. And it starts with uh, a video montage put together of like the heroes that we lost as done by like the TV video crew of a high school. Uh-huh. And so they play like, I will always love you under the, underneath. And you see images of like, 
obviously Iron Man and, and these various other characters that we've lost. Um, and then, and one of them clearly like the one of vision is like a grainy low res photo that they found. And then eventually they, sh- we see, um, various bits of footage. And one of them, you can see it has the, uh, like the watermark, uh, because they didn't want to pay to download the clip. <laughs> it's like, that's perfect. I love Wait, it. So who else in the montage then? Iron Man. Uh-huh. Uh, spoilers for Endgame. Obviously, okay. Yeah. Black Iron Widow. Man, Black Widow, Vision, Vision and because the people of Earth don't know who Gamora is. No, they don't. She's not. There's a fourth one, and I can't remember who it was. And it, they don't care about Loki. They all they know no. is Loki. And they don't know uh, Idris Elba. You know, it might. Uh, no, they don't. It's it's all like Earthbound heroes. Although Vision, they still know Vision. Uh, it might honestly, it might be Captain America because he does disappear. Oh, right. That's right. Uh, from yeah. our you know current timeline, so it might be that. Uh, I don't, I might be wrong about that. Anyway, so moments like that I think are really funny. Um, comedically, they, it's very like, amusing. There's a character that like died off screen in. Endgame, and this is how you found out. Find out, <laughs> Falcon. What's going on? Um, but uh, so it's as a comedy, it's pretty funny. And then there's a moment where, uh, like, Nick Fury is in it, and he's they do they do okay with the character. Um, but there is a moment that made me laugh where he's trying to recruit Spider Man to like do something and. Spider-Man's like, he goes, man, he goes, I, I'm, I can't do this kind of thing. Like, you know, I'm just, a, I'm just a high schooler. <laughs> he goes, he's like, bitch, please. You've been to space. Yeah. And yeah, I thought I that, that was, uh, oh, was in the trailer. I, I don't know if it's in the trailer because I don't watch the trailers, but, um, entertainment weekly called it out in their like, oh, okay. quotes. Okay. Uh, whatever they call it. Sound bites is what they call that, uh, little section. Well, I'm glad that I, I'm glad that I didn't see it because it made me laugh, yeah. uh, in the moment. Uh, the big, the big appeal of, Spider-Man Far From Home is the character of Mysterio. Um, I don't think I'm ruining anything when I say that despite what the trailers might tell you, he's the villain. Mysterio has only ever been a villain. And so you just, you know, there's going to be a shift in the character because he puts himself out there as a hero first and then he, he shifts. Now the shift is clumsy as hell. It's just a huge, like, pardon me, like a five minute long monologue to his own goons who already know everything he's saying. Like that's really bothersome Mm. to me. However, something it's one of those things where they use the character better than I thought they were going to, or better than I thought the character could be used. I don't think I ever, I always liked the design of Mysterio and all that sort of thing, but I don't think I ever fully understood the potential of Mysterio in a film. This guy, his whole gimmick is illusions. So if you do the end perception, so if you do it right, you can have these really trippy, strange moments, which they do. And in many ways it feels like, uh, if, you know, if you do it right, he can essentially be like the scarecrow um, from the Batman movies, which is showing you things that are terrifying to you and completely manipulating your mind to the point where you don't trust anything you're seeing anymore. And so there are moments that feel almost like the 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 strain the stranger moments of Doctor Strange, which is one of my favorite films in the franchise. Um, 
and it was one of those things I didn't even I didn't realize that's what I wanted out of the character until they showed it to me and I thought oh yes hmm. beautifully realized I really loved it uh, and then from a from a symbol uh, symbolic standpoint I absolutely 100% believe that the character of Mysterio is meant to be symbolic of the DC movies um, <laughs> just the way like if you listen to the like his goal you listen to the way he talks you listen to his general attitude and the way people talk about him and he's like oh yeah I mean it's it fits a hundred percent the stuff that he says like he's practically Zack Snyder and the and the fact that he's dealing with uh he's dealing with optical illusions so he has like a special effects team so he's constantly and he's saying like more explosions these need to be bigger you know which feels yes like Michael Bay but it's a lot of it and the idea of he's doing this so that he can put himself out there as a real hero and he doesn't care much about collateral damage which is the exact criticism people had for Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman and so interesting so yeah there's there's a lot to like about the movie it's not amazing but I liked quite a bit about it all right. Next up is another rewatch for me, and this is because I'll be I'll be posting a review hopefully uh, within the next week or so. But I uh, Criterion sent me the Do the Right Thing oh. Blu-ray, and um, and I, I was kind of like, oh, let me let me throw this in, and that's not going to work with Do the Right Thing. No. I'm going to watch the whole thing. So I yes. watched all of Do the Right Thing, and it's uh, it's so great. It's um, the thing that always. Uh, um, stands out to me is that despite like how kind of um heightened and theatrical a lot of the presentation mm-hmm. that, that spike lee gives it is the movie from a character a character and morality viewpoint is so messy it there really is, so, is. There, it is the movie the movie it resolutely refuses to tell you this person's a good guy and this person's a bad guy yeah. even though it has characters like do very bad things you yeah. know you would i mean the fact and i guess spoilers for do the right thing it's literally 30 years old yeah but like the fact that when the chips are down and things actually get heated danny Alo calls radio rahim and bugging out the n-word yeah and i feel like that that could be the breaking point that could be the moment when you go like oh he was he was awful all along right and yet spike lee still gives him grace notes after that yeah both spike lee the director and mookie the character like still um engages with him in a a non-black and white type of i'm not saying black and white in a racial racial way i'm saying in a in a a not cut and dry type of way i find that so so fascinating the movie the fact that the movie is not um, I'm going to compare Battleship Pretension to do the right thing, but it's a movie that is not interested in arriving at an answer about anything. Well, which I um, think is what makes it so many. So it's a film that I show my, my students uh-huh. um, when talking about color, although not <laughs> again, not, yeah, not, not the, race, what we mean. Yeah. yeah uh, so, um, but I also, it, it's always, I was saying this on a, on uh, Jim Rohner's uh, podcast recently, which is that uh, when it comes to that, I'm always torn between Dick Wait. Tracy and do the right thing. Okay. You were talking about Mike Lee on Jim Rohner's I know, podcast. but we also talked about, yeah. But it rhymes with Spike Lee. Does it rhyme? Spike, Mike. Spike and Mike. Yeah, Spike and Mike. Oh, yeah, because they're, because they're spelled differently, I never yeah. think about that, but yeah, you're right. You mean Lee is spelled differently. Lee is spelled differently, yeah. Spike yeah. and Mike yeah. are spelled differently because of different words. Yeah. But, um, wait, is Spike and Mike's Festival of Animation 
run by Spike Lee and Mike Lee? Yes. <laughs> it always has been this, yeah. this whole time. I didn't yeah. even know. They're best friends. Um, <laughs> and have been ever since, um, life is sweet. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, I always, I'm always torn between Dick Tracy, which has a really amazing use of color and do the right thing. But I choose to do the right thing because I feel like the conversation, once we get past that, the conversation about the film itself can lend itself to deeper ideas. And one of the things like my students understandably so are frustrated by it because it, because it's one of those things where like, again, spoilers for a 30 year old film, but like, well, radio Raheem, radio Raheem does not deserve to die, but he did deserve to be restrained. He was strangling a person, you know what I mean? Like, and then the right. cops just went overboard. Like that's the, it's yeah. not as though he simply was yelling at, uh, Dan, Danny Aiello. He like grabs him, pulls him over the counter yeah. and, and is strangling Even him after Danny Aiello broke the thing that is the most important thing in radio in right. the world. And again, called him the N word. Right. After uh, radio Rahim was in his establishment, refusing to leave and yeah. playing music way too loud. And, like and shouting, yeah, it keeps going. It's back. just, it's, it keeps the yeah. entire movie keeps going back. The like real that. villain is bugging out. Obviously, uh, that guy, <laughs> he's a, what do you call but that? Here's, He's a busybody. But here's the thing is because I, when rewatching it, I was like the argument that bugging out makes for wanting some black people up on the wall sure. of fame is a good argument that this is a black neighborhood that supports like right. his clientele is, is, is black. This is the only whole reason the business exists and thrives right. is because of the black clientele. He makes a good point, mm-hmm. and then he's a fucking asshole about it. Right. And he, like, punctuates his point by throwing his trash on the floor, which is, yeah. like, you're not going to, like, you know, you catch more flies with uh, honey than with vinegar bugging yeah. out. Um, but it's still, like, and there's John, no... And John Turturro's character is also, like, there are just characters that... Yeah. He's, I, I, he's the one with, I think... Because I was going to say, the closest we come to... A, there's a few, I think, characters that are purely good. You've got... Uh, Samuel Jackson, sweet. Mm-hmm. I can't remember his name. Um, ah, I don't remember. Yeah. And then you've got um, Austin Davis and Ruby D. More yeah. about them in a second. I was I was going to say the only character I think is just a bad guy is John Turturro. I, I yeah. feel very very little about. I feel very little positive toward him. He doesn't yeah. respect his father. He doesn't respect his brother. Like his brother, the people yeah. that that you know he. Um, who does he tell to, uh, to, I can't remember if he's telling, if he tells bugging out or somebody to like get a job and he's got that sort of like, well, I got a job and it's like, you only have a job because you were born. Into uh, right. It. It's like that. Um, and you hate it. Yeah. <laughs> you wish you could do anything else. It's like that. Um, the people always say about people like Donald Trump jr. Or whatever that you sure. like, uh, the, the quote that goes around or the phrase that goes around a lot is people who were born on third base and hit, think they hit a triple. Hmm. That's, that's a, that's a quote that I've heard a lot about, about, um, about Donald Trump, Donald Trump jr. Or about when, um, one of the Jenners, I can't remember if it's Kylie or Kendall, mm-hmm. some magazine called her the youngest ever self-made billionaire. And it's like, eh. ah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, she didn't lose the money. I guess <laughs> yeah. that's a win. Um, anyway, but, uh, so we're getting too far from the point here. Yeah. Cause the other, so that's, all right, those are those thoughts. The other thing that I was thinking of is because I happened to recently read, I think it was on film comment, a thing that was specifically about the career of Aussie Davis and Ruby D. Mm. 
um, and it was about something that I it got it, a lot of it ended up being about do the right thing because it was something that I hadn't really thought about, which is that they're old in the factors they that their their roots are in because of Jim Crow and segregations and there was the Chitlin circuit and yeah. stuff like that and so basically. At that age, and to, and then this argue, our article was arguing to some extent still today, standards of what are what is considered good acting are different mm-hmm. in the black community and the white community. Sure. Like basically, the 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 idea of the you know uh, uh, what's his name uh, the method guy. Uh, Stanislavski, okay. Stanislavski, yeah, yeah. and like that sort of still Adler, that sort of thing is was pretty much just practiced by white yeah. actors, um, and, and so the, and so the article was talking about how it was specifically comparing Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee's performance to Danny Aylos and John Turturro, who come from a very different school hmm. of being like psychology first, yeah. you know, whereas Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee are sort of in like gestures and theatricality and like yeah. performing first and um and yet it still all works together and i realized that spike lee it goes back to what i was saying what i was saying as a director is doing both things at once he's making yeah. this sort of big theatrical you know sort of uh, intentionally exaggerated thing and he's making a movie that is very psychologically complex yeah i mean it's something i remember um i was watching the behind the scenes of glengarry glenn ross and it was something that I hadn't thought about, uh, James Foley was talking about how, you know, when you work with a great cast of actors of various ages, you're working with different theories of acting. Yeah. And yeah. you look in as, as wonderful as Jack Lemon and Al Pacino are, J- James Foley's like, I had to be a different director with each one of them because, you know, uh, Pacino is that that method kind of thing. Jack Lemon couldn't be bothered with that sort of. Yeah. It's just like ugh, who has the energy, yeah. um, and so and then you and you add like Jonathan Price, so he's actually British, so that's a different style of acting uh, and all that. So uh, yeah, anybody that can bring all of that together, and and yeah, this the film absolutely could be a play, but it is one hundred percent cinematic at the same mm-hmm. time. Yeah. It is a genuine masterpiece. Yeah, I would say absolutely. All right, what's next for you? Next for me is another genuine masterpiece, Guy La- Guy Madden, Guy Madden, Guy Ritchie's Aladdin. Oh. Guy Madden's Aladdin. That one, that one I want to see. I'm joking, of course. The movie's not that good, um, but it's it's not as bad as I was expecting. I, it took me about 20 minutes in my opinion, 20 very difficult minutes to kind of get into the rhythm of the film. Um, it is, I would say deeply flawed in many ways. Um, what, what's going on over there? Oh, work. Sorry. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very flawed movie. It has a nice visual design and I think the actors are all very likable and I enjoy, um, I enjoy spending time with them. Will Smith as the genie is not bad. The issue is that they try and take the manic aspects of um, Robin Williams' genie, the idea that he can he swirls around and now he looks like this, or he swirls around and mm-hmm. now he's that, or his, his eyes are bugging out and all that. They try and take that and bring it to 
I would say a pretty energetic performance by Will Smith, but Will Smith, even when he's at his most energetic, is still pretty laid back and I would say aloof. And those two, th- and this manic thing and his aloofness do not go together at all. And so I wish that they had just taken their cues more from what Will Smith was doing rather than what people assume the genie is like because of Robin Williams. Uh, like the whole reason the genie is like that is because Robin Williams was playing him. You know, he would yeah. lun- he would launch into a, a Jack Nicholson impression or a Rod and Dangerfield impression or really any or his energy would go up and down. And they animated to that uh, here. They, they kind of want to do both and they they wind up undercutting what Will Smith is doing because I think he's actually doing pretty good work um, which is unfortunate um, they add a couple of nice uh, I would even say, they're almost thematic motifs but there's some character stuff as well like they they add a little bit of depth to Jafar the idea they there's a moment at the end of uh, the first Aladdin where Aladdin tricks Jafar into wishing that himself to be a genie. And Aladdin says, face it, you'll always just be second best. And the writers of the new one latched onto that, and they really play into the idea that like Jafar also started at nothing like Aladdin, worked his way up, mm-hmm. but realized that he was only ever going to get so far. He is second in the kingdom to the Sultan, and that's not enough for him. And so they incorporate that into his character so that finally when Aladdin does say that, he's tapping into something deep within the character, and it works pretty well. Uh, that, and then uh, there's a very side thing, like they they toy with the idea of what makes Aladdin so special, and that's... and as opposed to Jafar, and one of them is the genie talks about the type of guy who wants the lamp versus the kind of guy who doesn't. Mm. And then, and he's saying to Aladdin's like, you're not that guy. And then later on, the genie witnesses a, a, a moment between Aladdin and Jafar in which Jafar just is doing the villain stuff that he does. And then as he leaves the genie's like, he goes, so that's the guy hmm. like, and it's just a nice it, it, moments like that really work where they, they take what's in the film, the original film and they expand upon it uh, enough to intrigue me as an adult and as somebody who's already familiar with the story. Um, so I, I think it's a, I think it's a perfectly fine film. It's, they stretch out things a little bit too long. Um, but I, now, how uh, is Will Smith's Dean Martin impression? <laughs> oh, fun fact, he's doing it the whole time. <laughs> actually, that's, that might actually be kind of true in a way. But yeah, it's it's a film that I, in many ways, I'm happy that I saw. Um, I don't think it quite justifies its existence, but compared to the uh, conceptual abortion of uh, The Lion King, um, uh, I'll take Aladdin any day of the week. All right. Um, next, for me, uh, I watched, and you can read my review uh, right now, um, uh, I watched Garrett Price's documentary Love Antosha. Oh, yeah. It's a documentary about the life of Anton Yelchin, who who died very suddenly and very sort of... Hor- horribly. Yeah, but also just like so senselessly and yeah. uh, just a freak accident um, in 2016. Um, and um, the movie, I, I think there's... Anton Yelchin spent so much of his life in front of a camera, not only because yeah. he was acting from a young age, but because his, uh, he made movies as it like, like as, as I'm sure a lot of you and your friends did, sure. you know, made movies with his friends or would, would perform for his parents. You know, he was a very on camera. And I feel like 
someday maybe there will be another sort of more artful documentary made about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to sound like I'm slamming Love Antosha because I think it's the kind of the movie that maybe we need now uh, in terms of processing. Sure. Uh, it's a very straightforward sort of tribute to Anton Yelchin that um, I hope a lot of people see. I think uh, uh, it's, uh, I feel that I'm mourning him even more now. Like I, mm-hmm. you and I were both big fans of his, they show so many clips from so many movies. They didn't show the clip from experimenter that Boy, you and I love that one. It's time unfortunate. Meal. It's a great, great little moment. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd been a fan of his, I think, the first thing I really remember knowing his name was when he was on that show Huff. Uh, yeah. he, he played um, Hank Azaria's son. But I also remember before that, and they do show this clip, do you remember when he was on Curb Your Enthusiasm? And he was the uh, m- magician. The magician kid? Who yes. Uh, he like does a trick, and Larry's like, how'd you do that? He's like, oh, I can't tell you. <laughs> yes, magician. that's and right. And then like Larry storms off, and, and Cheryl's, and this clips in the movie, Cheryl's like, uh, yeah, you two are a lot alike. <laughs> and Anton Yelchin, like little like 11-year-old Anton Yelchin goes, yeah, except he's not a magician. <laughs> 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 anyway, uh, so there's all sorts of clips uh, of this sort of thing. There's also, I mean, this is a star-studded affair because mm. he was friends with and very much adored by a lot of the, a lot of the famous people he worked with both people like there are people like um Kristen Stewart that he worked with and uh Jennifer Lawrence that he worked with and a lot of the people on the Star Trek movies who flat out say like I was better in in that movie and have been better since because of working with Anthony Elgin, mm-hmm. because this was a guy who was like from a very young age knew he wanted to be an actor and knew that it was a serious <laughs> pursuit that he was like learning about acting. He I talk- think of him as serious. Like yeah. that's why he works well yeah. in that part in Curb Your Enthusiasm is because he takes this yeah. thing too seriously. Um, but he like, um, uh, uh he talked about, or Jennifer Lawrence talks about a scene they had together in the beaver, which I never saw, but, um, how in between takes Anton Yelchin was getting really frustrated with himself. He was like, I can't find, I keep trying different ways to say this line. I can't find it. And Jennifer Lawrence was like, Oh, I just, just, just pick, pick a, like, yeah, I've noticed. <laughs> and like, <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence is like a better actress now by her, by her own admission because, yeah. because of that. And like, I didn't know. He was also so private. Um, I, there's a huge, I, I guess some of this came out after he died, but mm-hmm. I didn't know until I saw the movie that he had cystic fibrosis his entire life. I don't totally know what that disease is. Uh, you didn't see five feet apart. No, um, I didn't. No, it's a really, I mean, it's, there's no cure. It's an ongoing chronic disease that a lot of people, that a lot of people die from. Hmm. He probably wouldn't have had a very long life anyway, because right. unfortunately because of this, but, um, it requires a lot of upkeep, a lot of focus on your, your health and your breathing. And you have to like, yeah. Um, so he was doing all this entire time that he was st- starting in 60 something movies and traveling all over the world. He was taking care of him, himself. Um, and then there was something else I was going to say that I didn't know. Uh, Oh yeah. Also that he like, um, broke Kristen Stewart's heart. And they were like in, and I can't remember what the name of the movie is that they're in together. Oh, fierce people. Is that them? That sounds, maybe, that, maybe he might've been, no, maybe he might be too young in that. Um, whatever movie they were in together, he was like a couple years older and she kind of like fell for him. And hmm. like, they were ended up being like good friends for two years, but also he like, 
she was anyway like i didn't she and she talks about all this like uh i didn't know all that it's uh really fascinating he was also an amateur photographer who um would go to like van nuys sex clubs and take pictures like he, he was in like really sort of like um uh, erotic photography okay uh, and so we see some of those he's like a really really interesting guy could play the guitar uh, very well had a band called the hammerheads which a bunch of their music is in the movie it's uh he might be able to play guitar well i will say all respect to late anton yelchin the hammerheads weren't that great oh, okay. uh, it's kind of like your standard sort of like white guy bar band type of music i think um and i have no i have no idea what you mean by that because i don't go to bars and i don't really know what uh what Uh, that means but anyway um but uh yeah the the movie's a real the the main thing that i took away from the movie is and the main thing you're i think meant to take away is and i'm gonna get emotional talking about it just how close he was with his parents his mother in particular Hmm. this is a guy who loved his mother and like when he was away shooting he would like send her emails every day or call her every day you know and that's uh, a really sad moment is that his dad or his mom is talking like that his dad tried to say like after he's passed away like well let's just you know we're gonna see him again when we die or whatever let's just pretend he's on a really long shoot and his mom's like i can't do that he'd be calling mm. all the time oh it's very sad um and also she, uh, I mentioned this in my review and this is a very touching moment is that she wears his denim jacket every day and, uh, <laughs> the parking ticket and condoms that were in the jacket are still like, she leaves them in the pocket, uh, and wears it every day. Um, <laughs> what is he? One of the blues brothers? Yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, I think yeah, that, that's one thing they talk about. He, um, liked, uh, ladies he liked the ladies yeah. um, and he would park anywhere he wanted to, yeah. to, to get them so the, yeah so the movie is I think um, you get yeah uh, there's I haven't even talked about like there's so many people famous people uh, and I so I talked about younger people his age but also older actors like Frank Langella and Martin Landau and Willem Dafoe hmm. who worked with him all were also interviewed for this and all sing his praises um and there's also footage of him acting with Albert Finney and Albert Williams, people who have passed yeah. away. Like, uh, it's, um, it's definitely a fitting tribute to him. I don't know, like in terms of what we think about his great cinema, is it a great movie? And it's pretty straightforward, but I think it's what I, I felt like it was something that I needed. And a lot of people maybe need. Here's one of the things. And I, I don't want to, I, I really don't want to seem callous by saying this. Um, one of the reasons I'm glad that this documentary exists, like when I when I heard about it, I was really excited mm-hmm. on principle because Anton Yelchin is, is was one of those actors that we knew and we respected, but because he died young and didn't really have a chance to get like those really. I mean, he'd been the lead in movies before, but like really gotten the chance to, as he got older to be like either a really beloved and respected and well-known and Oscar nominated character actor or right. a lead. I, I feel like he's one of those, one of those actors and there are, you know, throughout history, there are many of them who were probably very well known in their time. Yeah. And then just, even if they didn't, even if they had worked for 60 years and died at an old, uh, at an older age, they have just been forgotten to audiences and because he was so young and because his career while he'd been acting for a very long time he never really had like this moment 
in a larger cultural sense, aside from maybe Star Trek, but he's part of an ensemble there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, w- I found myself being like, yeah, he, this is a guy who is amazing and is not going to be remembered. You know, I, I think it's safe to say, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman made his mark. Sure. Yes, he would have made many more, but he made his mark already. Anton Yelchin was starting to and then died. And so a documentary like this, at least someone might, someone in the future might not know who he was and then somehow stumble upon this yeah. documentary. Who's to say? But it's just, it's nice to, like, take a moment for someone that, like, like okay, here's, here's kind of my go-to. James Rebhorn. Okay. Character actor that I always enjoyed. Yeah, me too. Uh, always added to the films he was in. He what he didn't die necessarily young or anything like that, but he's an actor that people don't really know the name of and he's going to this sounds so mean. I don't I'm not happy about this and I'm not I don't want to be callous about it. He's going to be forgotten for the most part. For the most part, but I hope you remember by the people who know what they're talking about. Well, I, I I hope so, but that's the thing. But I think, is, like, like, I think of actors... I, I look at movie posters from films like 60, 70 years ago, or even 50 years ago sometimes, and like there will be names above the title, and like, I have never heard of that name. Yeah, but there are people, the people who go to TCM Fest every year will sure. performatively clap when that person comes on screen just to prove to everyone yeah. else that they know who that is. That, that's the sort of yeah. thing that happens. So who do remember by those people, for sure? Every year I go to... I, I probably won't go this year because I think I'm going to be out of town, but I go to Cinecon in, oh. uh, in Hollywood. I always wanted to go. It's a lot of fun, and I, I'm... You and I would, I would say, skew young uh, there. It's, vi- it's, it's for, like older fans of older films and older film fans um like for example they're having like a memoriam of chuck mccann chuck mccann is he he's he was a comedian and an actor he'd been around for a long long time i knew him from some voice work he did here and there but like in his heyday i mean his heyday was before i was born and the fact that they're having a huge tribute to him have you, do you know who that is? Chuck no, McCann? Yeah. The name. yeah. And so like that speaks to like, yeah, among certain people, I think, uh, Anton Yeltsin will be, will be remembered. Yeah. And this documentary will help that. I think. All right. Um, let's get to the, our main event. We intentionally yeah. saved it for the end so we could get into spoilers. We're going to talk about Quentin Tarantino's once upon a time in Hollywood. Okay. Uh, notice I put the ellipsis in there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I, I have, see. I think I, I think you should say the last two lines as though you're uh, elaborating. Once upon a time uh, in Hollywood, <laughs> just that, in case you didn't know. Uh, and here, so here's the thing: I've seen it, you've seen it. I don't know how you feel about it. Okay. I'm going to say I have not said this publicly yet. It's my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. Seriously, yes, it is really damn good. And I would venture to say I love it. Yeah, I am. And I'm not it's it's not that I that I am saying you are wrong because it's yours. Just I'm really surprised. I had an image and I had an image in my mind of what of how this conversation was going to go. Uh-huh. And it is not that you thought I wasn't going to like the movie? I thought you were going to hate that ending. Oh, I, I, the, the ending is the or you mean. The ending ending is great. The very end. The climax, I would but say. But the climax yeah. is my least favorite part of the movie, but um, it also... And yet still... It also yeah. is... Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot we're not doing we're spoilers, so I can say. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, the climax kind of felt like, from a Quentin Tarantino standpoint, it felt like perfunctory. It felt like, oh, this is, he's making the movie that a lot of QT fans were hoping this movie was going to be. Yeah. But also, I would say it's, so, uh, yeah, it wasn't my favorite part, but also it was tempered by the fact that as brutally violent as it is, it's also hilarious. That ending is so funny. It is. And um, and, and honestly, I thought that might, because you and I have mellowed a bit, I think, as we get older about, well, maybe not mellowed on violence. Maybe it's quite the opposite. I think we've become a bit more uh, aware and critical of violence, especially if it is a bit callous. Um I keep using the word callous if it's a bit casual and funny. And so I genuinely, I thought it was funny, but then I also had a moment where I was like, should I be laughing? And I thought, well, the people that I'm watching this happen to, yeah, fuck them. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's kind of, you know, I'll tell you my favorite part. Well, okay. My favorite part, funny wise is when they, the Manson people first come in and Brad Pitt's whole reaction to like, yeah. Uh, can I help you? (laughs) And then he goes and he's like, who is your name? And he says, it whole, yeah. I'm the devil. He's like, no, it was dumber. Than it was that. dumber. Than, yeah. <laughs> um, it's like he but, became his character from true romance all of a sudden. Um, but here's just some, uh, my favorite part of the violence is, um, is it Susan Atkins? I can't, I, I, I don't know enough about the men's family to know who is who entirely. Susan Atkins was the swimming pool. Uh, okay. So it's Susan Atkins when he, whips that can of dog food right in, in her face because he's holding it. I kind of knew it was going to be a weapon yeah. at some point. I knew it was going to be a weapon because there are multiple shots in the movie of him em- opening the dog food and emptying it and you see it sort of this heavy thing yeah. drop. It so, looks like a brick. And that's what I'm saying. Yeah, so he, Quentin Tarantino has given us has given us multiple scenes of setting up what the weight and dimension of this can of dog <laughs> yeah. food is. So you know it's going to do to a person's yeah. face when thrown in their face at point blank. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm surprised. I didn't expect to talk this much about the ending um, because that's not my favorite part of the movie. Um, but I mean, I, that's definitely one of the big controversial moments. Like Jen and I saw the film last night and we talked a lot about that ending and like feeling conflicted, anticipating other people feeling conflicted and then me sort of arriving at why I'm not merely okay Okay with it but enthusiastic about it it's not my favorite part of the film by any stretch of the imagination but it's uh that the visit to the ranch is maybe some of the best filmmaking he's ever done oh okay uh yeah no i think that's great too but i'll tell you my two favorite scenes in the movie are sharon tate goes to the bruin to watch herself yeah and um leonardo dicaprio's or i should say rick dalton's scene with luke perry uh, and and uh, Julia Butters, the the yeah, the girl. And, and that scene uh, has depth to it because of all the lead up. Like his yeah. whole experience shooting that, like from beginning to end, which is a big chunk of the film. But like that whole thing yeah. is so beautifully realized. It's some of the best acting I've seen. I think it's a you know I said career best for DiCaprio with Django Unchained. I think this might this be is, it. This is something I talked about on on Twitter. Is I feel like Leonardo DiCaprio is this like model dating big like yeah. uh, uh, marquee idol movie star yeah. and yet he seems to do his best work with the one director who understands him for his insecurities yeah he keeps playing like uh, I mean Calvin Candy is he's a very dangerous character but he's pathetic and he's yeah. so insecure the whole thing about his Francophilia but then his like valid or whatever is like don't speak french he'll be insulted yeah. <laughs> he doesn't speak french yeah that sort of thing um 
uh, in his uh, too close attachment with his sister in Django Unchained. Again, like I said, I watched it again just like uh, two weeks ago. So yeah. uh, think about Django Unchained a lot. And here again, you've got an incredibly insecure character. The difference is that you're not supposed to like Calvin Candy. Right. And Quentin Tarantino has so much sympathy for Rick Dalton. I think that's the thing that when I say my favorite Quentin Tarantino movies, I've never felt so much empathy from him. And not that he's not been capable of empathy before. Right. But I feel like the fact that this is, that this, it's to talk about his career in general, that this guy sort of represented cinematic cool to an entire generation. Yeah. Has now made a movie of admitting that we all get more pathetic as we get older and there's value in friendship that friendship is what lasts your coolness won't last friendship will last it's so it's it's so like emotional to me that quentin tarantino is the one telling us like it's okay to become lame well and that's the thing is i would say the one of the arguments he's making is that there are different definitions of cool. There's different definitions of lame and that often the way to guarantee that you're going to be lame to use your word, um, or pathetic is to try to be, is to try to stay cool. Brad Pitt's character is cool, but he also is, he knows that he's just somebody's driver, but he's okay with it. And And as a result, he doesn't care that much about how he comes across, which is kind of the definition of cool. Even speaking of that, Brad Pitt is 55 years old, but have you ever seen a movie? I'm not counting like Curious Case of Benjamin Button where sure. there's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, digital effects or whatever, but a movie where he is so often depicted and talked about as being old, as in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's crazy. The lines in his face, the scene yeah. at, the, at the bar money, in Italy. Moneyball a little bit, because um, of course he's... Oh, because he's a former... Yeah. yeah. But like the scene in the bar when, when in Italy when he essentially gets fired, mm-hmm. there's... I almost thought there was like old age makeup on him. Like, like Quentin yeah. Tarantino and Robert Richardson as a cinematographer are really highlighting the lines in his face. Yeah. And also the way the Manson girls keep talking about him is like some old guy in a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. It's so like, again, I mean, obviously it's because I'm also getting old. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure if someone is, I don't know, 17 instead of, or six, I'm 36 or someone 16. Yeah. Brad Pitt is self evidently old to them. But to yeah. me, I've never seen him embrace it quite this much. Yeah, this might be the first one. And I mean, God knows it's not like I'm saying like, oh, he looks bad. It wasn't that. No, no. It's more just he looks amazing. You know, in that roof scene, Uh, it made me it made me uh, question things. But like the woman who was sitting in front of me, (laughs) my one like this was a very talkative theater that I was in. And Mm. I still loved it. The guy next to me. Okay, it was the Arclight on Saturday night, which has become I don't know if it was because of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but it was like a party like because they have extra. There's like another bar now. Do you know the? the oh, I didn't know there's another. On the second one. floor, there's like a makeshift bar they set up hmm. on the second floor. People were drunk, and so the, guy, the couple next to me was just like drunk. So the guy was not only talking to his wife for the whole movie, but talking with his hands, a lot of yeah. gesturing. But then the woman in front of me, who didn't seem to be with anyone, by yeah. the way, she um, two parts that I left or left at her at um, when uh, Julia Butters, a little girl has her whole like speech about what an actress is and is not whatever. Yeah. She did the like, yes queen thing. Um, and then when Brad Pitt scales the wall and goes to the house, she goes, okay, Brad, <laughs> uh, there was, yeah, my, my theater, much to my surprise was pretty quiet. Uh, they were very talkative. And then the movie, like through the trailers, I was like, this is going to be terrible. Um, and then the movie started and everyone, was quiet, but there was a 
an audible reaction to him getting up on that oh, roof sure, because yeah. it was you know pretty impressive. Um, yeah, uh, and then I also like that. You know, this is a, a, a movie where you have characters that are based on real people, but then you also have the little girl is essentially Jodie Foster, right? Like a hundred percent. Her name is Trudy with an I and her last name is like Forrester. It's something Frazier. like that. Frazier. Yeah. So it's, oh, and it's like, she's wise beyond her years. She's a young actress, yeah. but Jodie Foster, it couldn't be Jodie Foster cause she wasn't acting yet. Yeah. Uh, and also, so Lance was a real someone, show. Yeah. And the role that she's essentially playing, obviously Quentin changed some things, but that character on the show was not a little girl. She was like in her, she was a young woman. Hmm. She was like in her early, early twenties on the show. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. He's clearly made her young for a reason. Yeah. And, and so I, yeah, it's a film that I really, really, it's a film that I really loved. It's certainly my favorite movie of the year. Um, I'd have to think more about it in terms of his larger filmography. I, it's, it's interesting. He hasn't gone to it very often. It makes sense why he would do it now, but he seemed, there's just something about aging. He or the theme of aging that he really seems to tap in, be interested in. Like Jackie Brown, one of the best things about it. Speaking of em, being feeling yeah. empathy for his characters, yeah. like Robert Forrester and Pam Grier, just the and even Samuel Jackson and Robert De Niro. Now that I think about it, like these characters that aren't what they used to be, uh, and then he, but he was still pretty young at the time. He's, he was able to tap into it really well yeah. here. He's not so young. And now yeah. he's, he's seeing char- these various characters who are all trying to cling to something, trying to figure out who they are. And it's and just, uh, and this is like what I get to with empathy. There's something that I think he knows they're not necessarily great guys that like the things that they represent, the ed- the age of Hollywood that they represent is not necessarily like, uh, not necessarily something that he there's a I think Quentin Tarantino recognizes his nostalgia that he has a lot of love for this yeah but also probably recognizes that they're that it needed these guys needed to become dinosaurs and go away for another generation yeah um, but this is a he's making a sort of fantasy world you know Sharon yeah. Tate lives like he the, yeah. he gets to give them the ending in real life that they that they they didn't get um, and that brings me to uh, God, there's so many things I want to say about the movie. Um, but one thing that I, I kind of noticed in the movie, but I'm glad I then read this, uh, LA taco.com editorial about how LA taco was arguing, making the case that once upon a time in Hollywood, very conspicuously marginalizes Latinos as mm-hmm. a way of acknowledging the, history of marginalizing Latinos sure. in Hollywood and also in Westerns, especially because mm-hmm. like, like half of in real life, half of Cowboys were like Mexican or like right. American, like they spoke Spanish, they were vaqueros. Yeah. Um, uh, and so here you've got like the only, cause that's another thing I didn't realize looking up Lancer, the real show. So the mm-hmm. character that Timothy Oliphant's character is playing on the show is supposed to be half Mexican. Yeah. That's why he speaks Spanish. And in real life, the character Jim, Sp- Jim Stacy, I think was the actor's name was no more of a Mexican than Timothy Oliphant. <laughs> right. And so like, I think, you know, or Quentin, Quentin Tarantino is like commenting on, on that. There's also the great line, the huge laugh in my theater. Uh, don't cry in front of the Mexicans. Yeah. Huge laugh. My, um, my theater was predominantly Latino and they laughed. They laughed and then laughed again. Like the <laughs> laughter faded and it's almost like they all agreed. We're not done laughing. Yeah. <laughs> Let's keep laughing. Um, uh, yeah, but, uh, it's so much of my favorite, 
uh, I, I think um, I've intentionally not read too many negative reviews or like uh, uh, or or um, negative. I think it speaks to how well curated my Twitter feed is that I haven't. I, I, I follow maybe two people who seem to have not liked the movie. Mm-hmm. I really dig into why. But as far as the, our friend Terrence did not care for the film. I didn't uh, read his review yet, though. Uh, that's right. I didn't read his yet either. Um, so three people. OK. Um, but um, I, I think one of the complaints that I have seen from some of our listeners who like were disagreeing with uh, with me on Twitter is exactly what I love about the movie, which is that for at least two hours of a two hour and 40 minute runtime, it doesn't really have any plot whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, and I love that. I love just hanging out with the characters as much as like the ending is fun. Uh, Rick and Cliff watching that TV show together (laughs) is as good as anything else in the movie. And there's, and there's a moment, I mean, for a while you, we're just watching the screen and hearing them talk. It's like mystery science theater. It's very strange. That has one of my other favorite, the Brad Pitt has most of my favorite lines in the movie in terms of laughs. And my, one of my other favorite ones is, is during that sequence, the, the, when Leonardo DiCaprio on screen shoots somebody and Brad Pitt goes, Oh, right in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, it it really is a, a great movie. And what I like is that, you know, the moments of violence are certainly towards the end. I mean, it's not a phrase I use very often, but it's cathartic. You know, I mean, when it comes right down to it, don't get me wrong. I'm, I, I, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in favor of the death penalty, but I am aware that the death sentence for the the, the fucking hippies as they're described in the movie uh-huh. uh, was commuted. Did everyone all right? Well, not, no, the fucking not the fucking hippies. hippies. <laughs> 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 I laughed pretty hard at that, yeah. but, um, and that's a beautifully delivered line too. Um, that the cabaret is also really funny in the film, especially like, at the end with his margarita. Cause I love that he's <laughs> yeah. still sipping the margarita while he's yelling at the hippies. And then later being questioned by the cops after he's blowtorched someone to death, still sipping on the margarita. Um, uh, sorry. I I forget, oh yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the things like there's a, there's a moment where Brad Pitt takes a, a not merely a young woman, but a fairly small one and just bashes her face into everything (laughs) until her face is a bloody pulp. I saw that in a Friday, the 13th movie, you know, like, (laughs) which is, which is excessive and ridiculous. And I, and I wouldn't care for it, but, and here, you know, and what's interesting is, is my theater, there was a lot of laughs and then it, turned into just like oh like people are making no not yeah. laughing noises anymore and i had this moment where i just yeah, thought like natalie covered her eyes yeah it's pretty rough yeah. uh and so i did have a moment where i thought like well this is a little excessive it's like yeah so stabbing someone 50 times you yeah. know what uh, to hell with it and just like and when it comes right down to it like sharon tate and her baby and then the various other people yeah they're not around to see this movie whereas a couple of the I think one of them died in jail, but, um, but like Tex, he's still alive. Tex is still alive. Yeah. You know, um, as is, and I don't, again, I don't remember which I looked like so many others. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, Wikipedia probably had a huge spike in anything Manson family yeah. related in the last week. Well, um, yeah, I know Leslie Van Houten's still alive, but then would she have even gone to prison? Because yeah, Leslie Van Houten only participated in the LaBianca murders the next night. And those probably didn't, happen within this world yeah um yeah likely there's a part of yeah it's 
the, I mean, we know it's a fantasy. Like, yeah. this didn't happen. He's all, he's changing history. So, yeah, let him beat the shit out of the Manson girls. And it's like, it's, it's not sort of, real. It's, yeah, and it's also this idea. It's like, well, look, terrible, ha- terrible violence was going to happen one way or another. Yeah. Would you rather it happen the way it did? And the way, and this is this is where I actually get emotional. And this is one of the things I liked about Bastards, and it's one of the things I like about this, which is like, yeah, we know reality, and it's pretty inescapable. Mm-hmm. And the reality is going to be there when the movie's over. Yeah. And yeah. the reality is very sad and and really heartbreaking. So for a moment, let's let's do what we want. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I love about movies and one, clearly one of the things he loves about movies. The different, um, so I, last night I kind of went down a rabbit hole and on Twitter and Reddit and stuff of looking up and reading reactions from people considerably younger than we are who didn't know anything about like who went to the movie to see a new Quentin Tarantino movie, not knowing who Sharon Tate was, yeah. not even really knowing who Charlie Manson, like maybe having heard the name Charlie Manson yeah. and knowing that there was, that he went to prison or whatever, but not knowing any of this. And, um, it, that it's a very different experience. It seems it was probably insane. In fact, my, uh, one of my bosses said his son, uh, who liked the movie, but was so confused by Sharon Tate going to sure. the movies to see herself because very clearly that's not Maggie Margot Robbie, Robbie yeah. on the screen. That's that Sharon Tate, who is someone that the, he doesn't know who that is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Weird. Uh, must've been a weird, uh, experience. Like one person was saying like, I thought like at first I thought the hippies showed up because they followed cliff when he left. Cause they didn't know that, the, mm. that the Manson people right. went to, uh, they don't know, who, you know, uh, yeah, Damon Harriman shows up as Charlie Manson in one scene. Yeah. That's Terry Mulcher's old, old house. I don't even know that much about the Manson. I do now because I yeah. looked it up afterwards. Well, I do feel lucky that I earlier this year saw Mary Heron's Charlie Says, yeah. which could not be a more different take. I'm sure. Because Charlie Says is very much about, um, not doesn't in any way let, quite the opposite, does not let the women off the hook, yeah. but explores their psychology of, like being what happens to your brain when you're in a cult, sure. you know, um, really, really good movie. Um, but, uh, the, uh, one of the lines that, sorry, I interrupted you. Or well, there's one other thing I was going to, I was going to change the subject. You I, can change the subject. I was just thinking of the lines I really liked. Okay. Well, let me ask a question. Um, my, my wife kind of brought up, um, do you think the sort of element of Rick maybe living in denial about the fact that his best friend may have killed his own wife is Quentin Tarantino wrestling with being in denial about Harvey Weinstein and all his crimes. Do you think like, do you think there's some of his crimes against women particularly? Do you think, do you think that's in there for that reason? Uh, or maybe even subconsciously, maybe that's subconsciously maybe. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it could be this idea of, Honestly, like even if even if it turned out that Harvey Weinstein was like a complete angel, I feel like this could still be in there because it is an acknowledgement that Hollywood is not even even your heroes like yeah. have like an can have an unseemly past yeah. uh or present. Um and so but it could be it it could be his way of of dealing with that if not for just the general me too movement or harvey weinstein in particular which is obviously a big part of it um 
it's hard to know if that would be in there, but it, it also just, it definitely makes Brad Pitt's character a little bit more shady and yeah. flawed. And, and that's the thing. It doesn't, this isn't Quentin Tarantino putting something in the movie to let himself off the hook. Right. Like Rick Dalton is not let off the hook for looking the other way on his, no. <laughs> his, uh, uh, his best friend's potential spouse murder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> spouse aside. Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, what are some of your favorite lines that you wanted to talk about? The ones that like made me laugh that, I mean, obviously that, uh, well, the fucking hippies aren't, uh, that one was great. And then I really, it's just such a, so much of it is just delivery because the lines themselves are fine. But after he, after Brad Pitt gets in the fight with Bruce Lee and then he's, he's talking and they're like, what happened to my, you know, what happened to my car? And he goes, well, I threw this little bastard into it. And just something about, uh, about that, that. surprised me given Quentin Tarantino was a Bruce Lee fan yeah. to show him as just like a, such an arrogant asshole yeah. was uh, surprising to me. But I guess you do have to think this is Cliff's memory. Of course. That we're in. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but apparently um, Bruce Lee's daughter is not happy about them. I've heard that, yeah. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Eh, these things happen. Uh, Bruce Lee's, you know, Bruce Lee's image is going to be fine. This movie's not going to tarnish it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, yeah, so I I think it was my favorite movie because um, my favorite Tarantino movie, and I'm comfortable saying that. I didn't want to say it right away because I've said, I've said that before and then gone back. Like, I think I said... Django was, and then I yeah. went back to Bastards. Um, I don't know, but I think I'm pretty comfortable saying it's my favorite. It's for most of its runtime, it's a pretty big departure for him. It, it really is, yeah. Mostly in that it is uh, not that. I mean, he's always been, I think, interested in the moments in between the plot. Like he has characters just having long conversations about, you know, cheeseburgers and stuff. Yeah. But this is all that. There's no plot. There's just like yeah. these 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 moments. It's like hanging out or dealing with your mental shit or whatever. I mean, I know this sounds very strange, but as far as being plot driven or anything like that, I mean, it's, it's like a long sixties episode of entourage, you know, (laughs) where it's just, yeah, you try to get the parts you can and you you do the job that you can do. And in the meantime, your buddy's going to fix your uh, antenna on the roof. Uh, I thought another funny part and, Part of this is in the trailer, uh, speaking of in the trailer, when Leonardo DiCaprio is in his trailer beating himself up about forgetting his lines. And yeah. he's like, oh, duh, 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 like making yeah. fun of himself. It's funny. and But also I love that he's like, that's it. No more drinking. And then he like, without even thinking about it, absentmindedly like drinks in his glass. Yeah. And he's like, what? And he like, throws it out the door. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's just, and I do like from a, from an acting standpoint, I like that Rick Dalton has a bit of a stutter. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Because, and you think like, well, why would an actor, you know, if you, if you're, if you're a stutterer, why do you get into acting? But I mean, James Earl Jones had a stutter and then, um, there's a guy named, uh, Morgan Lott. He was never on this show, but he was on more than one lesson and he, and he has a stutter and he made a documentary uh, about it. And one of the things that he said is, and this is something that they talked about also in the King's speech that like, if you're reciting something or if you're singing, it's not going to, mm. that's not going to happen. And so the character is able to do that. But in real life, he, he is, he does have that stutter, which is why 
when he sort of mocks himself in that yeah. moment, he does it in a stuttering way. It's like clearly acting and getting it right is sort of a way that he copes uh-huh. with this other aspect of him. It's a, it's such a wonderful, both of those performances are wonderful. Let me ask you this. Well, I'll, I'll free, I mean, Margaret was great too. Yeah. I mean, d- yes, everyone in the film is marvelous. Cause a lot of people, a lot of what Twin Tarantino is known for is dialogue. And there were people were saying like, Oh, you didn't give Margaret Robbie as big a part, part because she doesn't have as much dialogue. But she's fantastic without her with her relative yeah. lack of dialogue. Yeah, and it's um, and, and she's just doing things like buying a book. Did you recognize Clue Gulliger? I did. The, I when he was on screen, I was like, I know who that is, and it wasn't until the credits that I was like, oh, that was Clue Gulliger. Well, you could say that with like. It's like uh, an actor with gray hair. That's got to be someone, oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's her performance is is great, and the way that she's conceived of, and the way she's written. Like obviously, we're building towards something that then doesn't happen. Like it's, but she's more than just a device for a misdirect. Yeah. It's also like she's on the she's on her way up. Yeah, and you see but she's not there yet she plays the klutz in a dean martin in a matt helm movie and so like you see like the 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 romance and the novelty and the love and the and just the almost kid-like excitement of hollywood like when you're first getting involved either as a viewer you know it's interesting that she's we don't see her on set we know that she has acted but we're also seeing her as a viewer and that this is all so new and fresh and wonderful to her well and this will be my final thought i think uh, okay. because it sums up what i like so much about the movie is that i don't think the what i like about the ending is i don't i don't think it says well now sharon tate gets to go on to be a big star for all we know she could flame out she could have her moment and then end up yeah. on the down side like rick dalton is which she probably will yeah she could she, just decide and, she likes being a mother and that's what she and, does yeah but it's just she gets the chance she gets the chance to yeah. become as pathetic as rick dalton is <laughs> yeah and that's uh that's so sweet that that uh, i think the tarantino um thinks that's the the tragedy of sharon tate's murder is that she never got the chance to become a loser. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's better to be alive and yeah. be uh, a loser. Um, and, and the alternate timeline thing allows you to play a lot of stuff out in your head. Mm-hmm. Who's to say that Polanski would do what he did in the seventies. If his wife oh. is still around, yeah. maybe he still does. And then, Hey, there's old, uh, Emil Hirsch waiting in the wings. Yeah, Sebring. Like there's uh there's just, yeah. it, it just allows you to think about so much. It allows you to talk about so much. And it's one of the things that I've always treasured about Quentin Tarantino is that his movies aren't such that you watch. I mean, I talked about Spider-Man. I enjoyed Spider-Man and then I moved on. Yeah. Yeah. You don't move on from Tarantino movies. Yeah. They stay with you. The characters stay with you. And you want to think about them over and over again. And then thankfully, there's plenty to think about once it's over. Do you think he's really going to retire after No. No. I think he's addicted to making movies. He's he can't, like Soderbergh. He's going to pull a Soderbergh. Yeah. He'll retire for a couple of years. Yeah. And then be like, oh, right. There's only one thing in the world I love. Yeah. And I'm not going to retire from that. Or maybe he'll first off finally cut together the whole bloody affair. Maybe that's the sure. first thing he'll do when he retires. Sure. Then he'll make another movie. 